Our reading today is from Matthew 2, 13 through 23. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. This is God's word. Thanks, man. Well, good morning. That's good. We're getting there. Uh, my name is Todd Daly. If you're a visitor this morning, uh, Randy Boldinghouse, the senior pastor, is on vacation. Uh, he is actually with us this morning. He and his wife were blessed with a time of uh, relaxing in the Florida Keys last week while we were canceling church in sub-zero uh, temperatures. But we, we, we welcome you back warmly. Um, <laughs> As I said, my name's Todd Daly. I'm a professor of theology and ethics at Urbana Seminary, and from time to time I'm asked to pinch hit, and this is, is one of those Sundays. Um, let me just tell you right away, I left my PowerPoint slides at home, so I'm a little bit out of sorts already. I like things just so, so I may just have to read things that I would prefer to have been on the screen. Um, sometimes that's just the way it goes. And uh, just one final shout-out to Mike. Jody, you know where you are. Best neighbors anyone could ever hope to have. Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we ask that we would hear from you this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Do you have the pipe Do you have the pipe? This is a question that I will likely never forget. Uh, Many, many years ago when I was an undergrad, I found myself driving through a blinding snowstorm from Davenport to Ottumwa, Iowa, after having spent a weekend at my folks' place. Uh, And I was on a two-lane highway in the middle of nowhere in southeast Iowa when my 1976 Ford Granada started sputtering and jerking I think that the carburetor had gotten full of snow, and two minutes later, I found myself stuck on the side of the road. No cell phone, 
Um, they had been invented, but they were extremely expensive back then. No winter preparedness kit, no signs of life. But thankfully, about 15 minutes later, uh, a, a couple of, uh, well, one car pulled up with four people inside, and they gave me a lift. Fortunately, they were actually heading back to the same town that I had tried to get out of because they had the wisdom to, to turn around in the face of the storm, recognizing that they would likely wind up in a ditch if they kept going. How wonderful, I thought. Not only did they help me out by giving me a ride, but they had exercised more sound judgment than myself. I am in good hands. That's about the time that the driver asked the fellow sitting next to me in the back seat, do you have the pipe? Now, given the fact that they... Uh, these folks were young, and uh, they didn't carry British accents. They weren't wearing tweed jackets and ascots. I quickly concluded that this was not the kind of pipe that my grandfather used. <laughs> sure enough, once it was lit, they started passing it around. And, and being polite, the woman sitting next to me asked if I'd like to join in. Honestly, at this point, I wasn't quite sure what to say. My stress levels were climbing. Um, the, the roads seemed to be getting worse and more treacherous, and the driver, uh, more disconcertingly, seemed to not care about the fact that the roads <laughs> were getting slippery. But I, I declined, saying, you know, I'm, I'm a religious person, to which, uh, to which someone said, that's cool. <laughs> As they continued to, to pass the thing around. And we, we eventually made it back to four-lane roads while the blizzard continued to rage, uh, and the conditions at one point got so bad that we had to drive so slowly that the man in the passenger seat thought it would be funny to give an illustration of how slow we were driving, so he jumped out of the car while it was moving (laughs) and decided to run alongside the car in, in the adjacent lane in order to demonstrate just how slowly we were driving. Literally, I can run faster than you are driving. At least that's how I remember most of the story because uh, they kept the windows rolled up tightly for the better part of an hour. (laughs) Some of the details are just a bit fuzzy. (laughs) But thankfully, uh, I made it home. Uh, I thanked them profusely, uh, and they went merrily on their way. Uh, That day for me did not at all go as I planned it. I was supposed to be at school. I wasn't about to let a snowstorm interrupt my plans. I was part of a core cohort at school, and I didn't want to let down my fellow students. I was supposed to have a car that actually worked. When I woke up that morning, I never expected to be driving with four stoned good Samaritans in a blizzard. Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, in this story, believe it or not, is addressing just these kinds of concerns. Now, bear with me. We'll try to make the connection. Um, Yes, the Messiah has come. That's what Matthew said earlier in chapter 2. Born in Bethlehem, tidings of comfort and joy to the shepherds. The star guiding the magi. Baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes in a manger. Emmanuel, God with us. But now Christmas is over. And the depressing reality of January has set in. Presents are returned uh, or or put away. Family members go back home. The warmth of Christmas and chestnuts roasting on an open fire has been replaced with the bone-chilling cold of January. 
And the arrival of the promised Messiah and his coming rule are accompanied by fear and flight, where cries of joy are drowned out by cries of bitter anguish and lament. Is this how the story is supposed to go? That's the question that Matthew is addressing. He's the only gospel writer who takes the trouble to acknowledge these events. And given the nature of these events, I suspect that most of us would just rather skip over this passage. I know I would. Why not go with Luke's account? It's it's much nicer and more succinct. He, He summarizes this whole span of Jesus' life in little more than a verse. He says, when they had finished everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. It's much nicer. It's much shorter. But Matthew instead gives us 11 verses that at times are downright torturous, that span hundreds of miles and at least a year in time. And the point here is that Matthew has a reason for including these events, these somewhat embarrassing and horrific events, and it relates to his audience. Because Matthew was writing for his people, the Jews, and his whole purpose in this part of the narrative is to remind his listeners that they should not be misled by circumstances. You can trust in God's plan, he's saying. God is still on the throne. God is still in control. And that's it. I mean, that is the message of this passage. We might as well just close in prayer. I, some of you probably are wishing that we would close in prayer now. Um, but I, I want to talk about three, three people in this narrative, three kinds of people that are identified, I think, with us. We can trust in God's plan. And we find clues about this thesis in a phrase that Matthew uses on three separate occasions. When he's talking about the flight to Egypt, when he's talking about the massacre in Bethlehem, and when he's talking about resettling in Nazareth. He says that these things had to take place as a fulfillment of prophecy. Lest there be any doubt that the circumstances surrounding Jesus' early life pointed to another time when the Messiah would come, Matthew records these events to argue that this indeed is the Messiah and to remind his Jewish audience that God remains in control even when some events may suggest otherwise. And these somewhat embarrassing and horrific events have something to say to us this morning. While they may not seem directly related to us, we can find elements of our stories in this story. Or perhaps better, this story has something to say about our stories. Especially if we're facing circumstances that might tempt us to conclude that God maybe isn't as great or as powerful or as loving as we once thought. We might be faced with deep uncertainty this morning. We might be struggling with control. Others of us are struggling with profound loss. And we're going to address those three cases this morning. All with the mindset that we need to hear that God is still in control. First, we can trust God's plan when life gets chaotic or we're faced with uncertainty. 
We're all creatures of habit. Most of us don't care for change. I'm, I'm, I'm very much of that mindset. I don't like change. I don't want to change. One of the most stressful things you can do is pack up and move to another city or move house. It requires that you pack up all of the junk that you've been carefully stored away or the stuff that you just don't want to deal with. I mean, imagine having to empty your garage. I mean, it's even worse if you have to move it to a new city where you may have to you know, take on a new job, find new, you know, meet your neighbors, make new friends, find a new church. If God were calling me to move my family, I don't think I would be terribly enthused. Partly because of a 12 by 15 space that's mostly all mine. And that's my study at home. It's my place, it's my place of comfort, my place of joy, probably my place, my place of absolute control. Although that's probably an illusion too. When we, when we first moved in, the, the walls in this room were burnt orange with dark brown trim. And I spent hours and hours painting the woodwork white, replaced the closet doors, put a nice white panel door on the entryway to the room. I painted the walls just the right shade of gray. Tells you a little something about my mindset, maybe. Uh, I spent a year painting and building bookshelves floor to ceiling, wall to wall. Mostly wall to wall. Just yesterday, I finished installing some lighting for the bookshelf so I can create just the right ambience and I can uh, look at all the books um, that surround me. I, it, it provides me great comfort and, and on some level a little bit of anxiety because I haven't read them all. <laughs> I have the furniture situated just right. The desk looks out uh, on, onto a beautiful park where you can see a playground, you can see the kids, and you know I can see my kids, but the beautiful thing is I can't hear them. Um, you know, if I look to my right, I've got some black and white photos I took when we lived in Edinburgh, Scotland, and they remind me of that place and a happy time, and I can just sit there and relax, and I can take in the colors of the fall. I can, you know, there's two pine trees there, and when the snow is on the pine trees, it looks so beautiful, especially for Christmas. I can sit in my chair on mornings when church is canceled and watch a blizzard blow through the park. I don't want to pack all that up. I don't want to start over. Think of how Joseph must have felt based on what God wanted him to do. I'm not sure exactly where you'd place all of the events of his life on a stress chart, uh, but just consider some of the things that he endured. You know, your fiancé tells you she's pregnant. The child isn't yours. You start planning a divorce and are wondering how you'll ever regain your reputation. You marry your pregnant fiancé, but forego the intimacy of marriage until the Son of God is born. You have to travel to a new city or an old city with your pregnant wife, get into town, but have no place left to stay. And when you do finally become the adoptive father, an angel appears to you in the middle of the night with no warning and tells you, you've got to get out of Dodge. Go to a place that you've never been before for who knows how long because an evil man is trying to kill your child. So you, you move, you obey, you leave in the middle of the night, and you settle in Egypt. Just, however, when you learn to become comfortable in Egypt, here comes another angel, tells you it's time to go back to the place where you came from. So you pack up and you leave again, only to find that the new ruler is actually worse than the old 
ruler. Reminds me of that song by the Who, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. So you move yet again with a toddler to an insignificant backwater village under the rulership of a leader who was only slightly more stable than Herod the Great, Herod the Great who is now dead. Only the Herod that ruled in Nazareth, or in Galilee, where Nazareth was located, was the same Herod who beheaded John the Baptist in order to save face at a party. You know things are bad when that kind of leadership reflects improvement. I would think by this time that Joseph would want to take a very strong sedative not ever to have to dream again, or at least remember it. Yet through all of this change and uncertainty, God remained sovereign. The flight by darkness, the persistent threat of danger. Matthew describes God's sovereignty in very specific ways where God intervened in very specific ways to deliver Jesus and his family from imminent danger. Lest there be any doubt concerning these events, Matthew sees them as a fulfillment of prophecy, although not in the ways that we might typically expect. Yet this flight to Egypt, this return to Bethlehem, this settlement in Nazareth had to happen, as he says in verse 15. This reference here to out of Egypt actually refers to the prophet Hosea, where God likened Israel to a wayward child. Matthew here actually creatively reinterprets Hosea's depiction of Israel as this wayward child being reluctantly led out of Egypt, as the Israelites were during the Exodus. But he takes this passage and makes it speak of God's son, the Messiah, who will be called out of Egypt. For Matthew, this represents the new Exodus. He just takes up this kind of new typology and intensifies the theme of deliverance. Same kind of things going on in verse 23 when he again says this is to fulfill what had been said. Here actually there's no single verse in the Old Testament that Matthew can cite. You will look in vain to find it. He was probably playing a word game uh, with Isaiah 11.1 which if I had my PowerPoint slides you could read on the screen behind me. But there Isaiah talks about a branch from Jesse. A branch in the Hebrew Uh, which translates as Nazare, or sounds like Nazare, which is kind of a wordplay on Nazareth. We don't need to get concerned with all of those details, but it's, it's important to note that for Matthew, this was significant. This is part of God's plan. Jesus was to live and grow up in a place of relative insignificance. Nazareth was practically a pejorative term. Tell anybody in Chicago you live in downstate Illinois. doesn't matter what the town is. Um, It will probably be interpreted pejoratively. I know I used to live in the suburbs. I didn't know Illinois existed beyond the south sides of Chicago. Recall Nathaniel's question, perhaps, uh, in John, where he said this about Jesus of Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Yet consider this. God was most active in Joseph's life when things were most uncertain. God was most active in Joseph's life when things were most uncertain. Once he settled his family in Nazareth, we never hear from him again. God spoke to Joseph Joseph amidst the chaos and uncertainty. God spoke 
at night. God spoke in the darkness. God speaks in our darkness. And God offers his protection in this process. A couple of weeks ago, uh, I was at my folks' place for the holidays, for Christmas, and uh, I had gotten up early, in, in part so I could work on this sermon, and my son is an early riser, sometimes too early, and he woke up and found me in, in my dad's office, and I had to lead him back to, back to bed. Everyone else was still asleep, uh, and our room was in, in the basement, in the far corner. And so as we approached the steps to go downstairs into the darkness, because others were sleeping, I didn't dare turn on any lights. And so I just told him, stay close to me. I know where I'm going. I know you can't see, but I'll get you back to your room. And I led him down the stairs and weaved around several obstacles and got to the room which is where, where the metaphor breaks down because I, I walked too quickly, it turns out, and he wasn't right behind me. And when I realized he wasn't behind me, I turned around and smacked him on the head with my coffee mug. Um, but God doesn't do that. But sometimes God is selling, telling us, take my hand as he leads us through the darkness. He may only say, follow me or stay close to me because I know the way. Though you can't tell where we're going, I know the way. Some of you are facing uncertainty this morning amidst change. And Matthew is telling you that you can trust in God's plan because he knows the way. There are others of us, however, this morning who may be faced with something a bit more sinister. And Matthew's gospel here also tells us that we can trust in God's plan when evil tries to seize control. As I mentioned before, Christmas is over. And the harsh reality is that this fragile child has been in a world, born to a world where the powers of evil are set to destroy him. Earlier in the chapter, Matthew has told us that Herod the Great had asked the Magi to reveal the precise location of this child under the pretense that he could go and worship him as well. In fact, our passage opens with the Magi's flight back to their own land, having been warned in a dream. And on learning that he had been outwitted, Herod was absolutely furious and ordered all the male children two years and younger slaughtered in Bethlehem and the surrounding regions. As this event makes clear, Herod doesn't have a problem with killing. He was an exceedingly wicked ruler. And the whole political setting and background for Matthew's account here is one of palace intrigue. After Herod had been designated by the king of Judea, or as king of Judea, by the Roman emperor, Back in 37 BC, he captured Galilee and then took Jerusalem by force. He was hated by the Pharisees because he was a half-Jew and because he fostered alliances with Rome. He had tons of enemies both inside and outside of his family due to some messed up dynamics. One of the first things he did when he sacked Jerusalem was to execute 45 of the wealthiest aristocrats who had supported the last Hasmonean ruler, Antigonus, whom Herod himself had beheaded. 
Then he took their property and wealth and put it in his own coffers. He burned alive some religious men who had tampered with his golden eagle. He had ten wives, several of them who wanted to make their sons the next ruler, creating, um, to put it mildly, a lot of marital tension and strife. And this kind of situation over time left him perpetually paranoid and suspicious. So much so that he executed one of his wives, one of his favorite wives, and later had his mother-in-law killed too. He had several of his own sons strangled to death because he wrongly suspected that they were trying to plot for his throne. And because he kept killing off sons who were to inherit the kingdom, he had to keep rewriting his will. Some scholars say at least seven different versions of it existed. Even a mere four days before he died, he executed another son. He was so wicked that Augustus Caesar himself, the emperor of Rome, is reported to have said, it is better to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. And shortly after this infanticide in Bethlehem, Herod himself died of a terminal disease. We learn this through the church historian Josephus. And fearing that the people would not mourn his death, he had ordered that the nobles throughout the land be executed as soon as he died. Thankfully, this was countermanded by his sister Salome, and it was never carried out. But that's how narcissistic of a guy he was. He wanted to do everything within his power, even beyond the grave, in order to manipulate how he would be remembered and understood in history. The historian tells us in great length all of the details of Herod's funeral, the colorful procession of the national dignitaries, military units that marched beside his body, what the casket looked like, overlaid with precious gold, studded with beautiful stones as it was led to the Herodium where he was to be buried. But what is interesting here is that Matthew's account of Herod's death is almost an afterthought. On three separate occasions in this narrative, Matthew reminds his readers that Herod is dead. In fact, the first occurrence of Herod's death is spoken of, as I said, a mere afterthought. At the end of verse 15, Matthew simply says that Joseph and his family remained in Egypt until the death of Herod. That's all he gets in this narrative, at least so far. Note, however, that after Matthew here gives a high-level summary of this whole story in the first three verses, 13 through 15, in verse 16, Matthew starts the story again or goes back and fills in more details describing how the slaughter in Bethlehem was carried out. It's almost as if Matthew wants his readers to know that the man who carried out these horrific acts was, in a sense, already a dead man before God. And even when Matthew moves the narrative forward again in verse 19, he opens this part of the story by noting once again that Herod was dead. It's time for you to gather your family, Joseph, and return to Judea, for those who sought the child's life are dead. He's not even mentioned by name in this last occurrence. Herod has died and taken his place among the wicked rulers of history whose schemes and plans for power were frustrated by God's providence as someone who had utterly failed in the face of God's power. 
Think of all the weapons available to Herod, the support of Caesar, Roman soldiers at his disposal, the begrudging support of an equally paranoid and suspicious Jewish leadership. Herod's plan for destroying the infant king, however, were undone by a tiny thought planted in the dream of an anonymous, insignificant carpenter who was having trouble sleeping. While Herod's plans were easily thwarted by God, however, they were not without the terrible consequences. There was much weeping and wailing that day as a result of Herod's wicked scheme. Herod the Great, ambitious and arrogant, deceitful schemer, master manipulator, vindictive and volatile, boastful and belligerent, paranoid and petty. It's not difficult to multiply, multiply the unflattering adjectives here. But see, here's, here's the real kicker of this story. You see, we're all Herods from time to time. Maybe you don't find yourself in a position of uncertainty like Joseph this morning, but the Herod impulse, make no mistake, lies within us all. In our desire to control our environment or our circumstances or other people, it's all too easy to pull a Herod. We may never kill anyone with the sword, but we can kill with words. We can kill with condemnation, with unfair judgment or manipulation. We might destroy a marriage or two or raise our kids in such a way that they will need counseling, but our attempts to control others will always fail. And so Matthew's account here serves as a warning to us when we're, attempted, we're, we're attempting rather to seize control of life when unfavorable circumstances confront us. When we travel down this road, however, we become as dead and as powerless as Herod in this narrative. But there's a dark side and there's a real tragedy. Because while this this quest for complete control remains ever elusive, the consequences that are unleashed and the relational wreckage that is left behind continues to linger on. We all have a Bethlehem in our past. We all have a Bethlehem in our past. And how easily God thwarts our own grandiose dreams and illusions of control. But how deep is the pain we inflict on others when we do so? Finally, we can trust God's plan when we're faced with catastrophic loss or inconsolable grief. And this is the the real question that maybe has been lingering in this whole passage. I mean, it's all fine and good to talk about God's sovereignty when he steps in and delivers people and rescues them and warns them. But we are faced with a situation that's a little bit different. What about when the angel doesn't come? What about when people are not warned? What about when evil is unleashed and there's nothing done about it? Matthew tells his Jewish audience that even this tragedy was foretold in the Old Testament. Even this horrible event somehow, somehow fits in with God's master plan. 
Herod is in a furious rage, having been outwitted or tricked by the Magi, who themselves were rescued by a dream. So he does the math and carries out his evil deeds, spreading the destruction around the region of Bethlehem just in case they had moved. Here again, Matthew cites the prophet Jeremiah. In chapter 31, he says, A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they were no more. Rachel was actually the mother of two sons, Joseph and Benjamin, who became two of the 12 tribes of Israel. And here she serves as a personification of the mothers of Israel whose sons were being carried away into captivity by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. He was carrying off the sons of Israel, marching from the town of Ramah. Rachel actually died in childbirth many, many years before, giving birth to Benjamin, and was buried near Ramah. So Jeremiah depicts Rachel as weeping from the grave, as it were weeping from the grave as her sons were led into captivity. What is really curious to note, however, is that here Jeremiah's powerful imagery of Rachel weeping over the lost children of Israel is contained in a chapter which overwhelmingly speaks of hope. Immediately following this quote, Jeremiah goes on to say this, Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, says the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, says the Lord. Your children shall come back to their own country. Jeremiah here is predicting the return of the Israelites or the the tribe of Judah, the land of Judah, to or from, rather, Babylon back home. He's foretelling that there will be a return from exile. But Matthew leaves this out. He is not interested in talking about hope and speaks only of despondency and utter despair and a refusal to receive comfort. For Matthew, the weeping of Rachel from the grave is echoed in the weeping from from Bethlehem over children who are no more and over children who will not return. He has, he has the nerve or the temerity to claim that even this horrible event is somehow part of God's plan. And we are left with serious questions about God's goodness and his control and his sovereignty. Once again, where were the angels and dreams to warn the fathers and mothers of these children? How could God intervene to save the life of one child but not the others? We might be tempted to soften the blow a little bit or take the edge off of that question by observing that uh, the infant's suffering was probably over quickly and that they now rest in the arms of God and that it's really only the parents who are left, uh, left suffering. And parents, after all, are more equipped to deal with this kind of suffering and loss, especially these parents, given the realities of a Roman rule. 
yet we're still faced with the fact that Matthew says this had to happen. Or we might be tempted to soften the force of these questions by observing that most biblical scholars have concluded that Bethlehem was a very tiny village and that it is likely that only 20 children were killed. Well, that's still 20 too many. We might try to understand Bethlehem through the lens of observing what the Bible says about Christians and what we're to expect in this world, that is, persecution and even martyrdom. Not too long ago, 45 Christians, uh, Orthodox Christians found this out. Men, women, children who were massacred in the city of Sadad by members of the Free Syrian Army. An army supported by our, by our own government. But the question behind these tragedies, how an all-powerful good God could allow these things to take place, still remains unanswered. We might also note that these kinds of tragedies basically happen every day and on a much larger scale. You can still visit the original French town of Ouradour-Souglon, but you won't find a single room or place to stay in this village. That's because in World War II, the Nazi SS troops carried out a retaliation against this village, having mistakenly identified it for one that was harboring members of the French resistance. So they came in and slaughtered 642 villagers. Eyewitness survivors, no more than six, described how the SS troops herded all of the men into barns, machine-gunning their legs to prolong their death before setting the barns on fire. And then afterwards, they pushed the women and children and herded them into the village church where they locked the doors and set it ablaze, shooting any who attempted to escape. They finished the job by setting the rest of the town on fire. And the ruins of this town remain today as a memorial to those who lost their lives. Children, mothers, fathers, grandmothers, grandfathers. But even this loss is comparatively small when compared to the systematic extermination of Jews carried out by Hitler and the Nazi regime. And history tells us that Rachel's voice from the grave in Ramah has been joined by an ever-growing chorus of despair and lament that stretches the world over. While these examples might put that original tragedy of Bethlehem in perspective, it only forces the question of God's sovereignty upon us with more urgency. And this is the part I don't like. Because Matthew doesn't flinch here. Even this was a part of God's plan. He is simply not interested in giving us a detailed account of how exactly these events in the early life of Jesus can be reconciled with a God who is good and can be reconciled with human freedom. He only wants to tell us that even this fits in somehow with God's plan. And at this point, we must tread very carefully especially when we try to construct any kind of theology that confesses that God is good and sovereign and also acknowledges the realities of evil and the reality of human freedom. 
Some theologians, in my mind, go astray when they try to explain God's sovereignty by saying that God has decreed everything that will happen before all time, um, which stretches, in my estimation, the existence of human freedom to the breaking point. I'm not sure that kind of God is a personal God. Other theologians argue about the nature of predestination and foreknowledge, as Paul uses those terms in the book of Romans. Does God predestine before he foreknows, uh, because he foreknows, rather, or does he foreknow perfectly because he's predestined these things? Those are seminary classroom kind of questions. Um, And rightly so, because they lead quite quickly into a bit of a philosophical cul-de-sac. And they lead us away from Scripture. I think it's better to stay close to the Bible when considering these things and to consider Job as one example of how this dynamic might work. In the story of Job, God allows this kind of suffering into our lives at the request of Satan, even though we may never, ever know why. Job's questions are never answered, but he certainly learns something about the great and terrible mystery of God. Either way, though there may be a razor-thin line between God declaring something and God permitting something, the buck stops with God. I think uh, the pastor theologian Paul Tillich probably said it best about providence in a sermon that he preached shortly after World War II. Uh, As I told the first bunch, I've taken some liberty to edit uh, his material because a lot of the things he said elsewhere are downright heretical. But I I think he's good here. He says, providence, uh, keep in mind, he's writing in the background of World War II. Providence does not mean a divine planning by which everything is predetermined, as is an efficient machine. Rather, providence means that there is a creative and saving possibility implied in every situation, which cannot be destroyed by any event. Providence means that the demonic and destructive forces within ourselves and our world can never have an unbreakable grasp upon us, and that the bond which connects us with God can never be disrupted. God remains sovereign in our catastrophic loss and inconsolable grief. And for some of us here this morning, Rachel's story is our story where the depth of pain transcends all language and can only be expressed by groans. The kind that Matthew identifies in verse 18, or the kind that comes through most clearly in in the Greek. Some of you here have lost a child through an accident or overdose or illness, whether young or old. Catastrophic loss. Some of you have lost children before you've ever got the chance to welcome them into the world. Some of you are mourning this morning what might have been for children who are still alive or under your care, but because of various maladies, whether it's depression or bipolar disorder or autism, or other cognitive disorders, they seem to be locked behind an impenetrable veil of silence and anger and fear and frustration. 
others remain uh, broken-hearted parents of prodigals. I can only say to you with Matthew this morning that God remains in control and that he has a plan. And he loves you and he knows your pain. In Jesus Christ, God knows exactly what it is like to be the most vulnerable of humanity. God himself knows the absolute depths of your pain and sorrow. We sang earlier my favorite title of Jesus, Man of Sorrows. But here's the take home, right? He does not lead us through any dark valley of pain where he hasn't already gone before. Because God, too, knows what it's like to lose a son. And we must never forget that the cradle in Bethlehem did not lie in the shadows of a stable or the shadow of Rome, but in the shadow of the cross. God remains sovereign in our catastrophic loss and inconsolable grief. Let's pray.